Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders and investors to help you scale a business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. His name is David Einemar Anson, the famous founder and CTO at 37 Signals. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And just a quick introduction uh, for the ones who are a little bit uh, distracted. Uh, David is the creator of uh, Ruby on Rails. Uh, as I said, the co-owner and CTO of 37 Signals, Signals that has Basecamp and A, uh, New York Times bestselling author of Rework, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, Remote, uh, Luma, Classic, Winning Racing Driver. I'm curious about this one. Antitrust advocate, investor in Danish start startups, uh, frequent podcast guests, and uh, family a family man. And we are having hosting you for the episode number three hundred, David, since two thousand eighteen. Wow! So that's a special one. <laughs> no pressure. Nice number. <laughs> Anything else that you'd like to add about you, uh, David? No, I think there's enough uh, in those things for us to talk for 10 hours, if that's what we had. So <laughs> yeah, wherever you want to start. So you founded 37 Signals in 2001, so 22 or almost 23 uh, years ago. So I've been very vocal about some of your uh, beliefs, namely about growth, going through bootstrapping instead of uh, raising VC capital. That's a lot of the companies that we have on on the show as well, but we also have covered a lot of uh, that says that have been choosing the bootstrapping route. Uh, a, a second interesting, um, let's say, uh, conviction is that you you try to make your headcount stable instead of uh, trying to be a, a thousand people company. According to LinkedIn, you have around one hundred and fifty or or so. At at this stage, is it correct or? <laughs> No, no. LinkedIn is a curious thing. You can just say you work for any company and it'll add it up to it. So okay. uh, about half of that is just people who thought, I suppose, it's it cool on their profile to okay. have our company uh, in there. And just a small correction. Um, the company's actually from 1999. And, okay. and I joined up and, uh, if you will, co-founded the phase of the company that became a software company. Uh, 37 okay. Signals started as a as a web design company back in 1999. And when I joined up was when we turned it into a software company instead. But yeah, it is really curious with LinkedIn. Um, I have seen some of the names on there. I have no idea who it is. <laughs> I have just under 80 people at the company now, which is actually the biggest we've ever been. For many, many years, we were just around 40 or 50 people. Um, and then um, we went from having Basecamp to also having a very successful um, email platform, hey.com. And that's how we became slightly bigger. But still, compared to all our competitors, um, all the major players in this space, uh, we were absolutely tiny in terms of headcount. But um, we really make those heads count. Excellent. <laughs> Love it. That, that's a good point. And, and that's, that's true. I had this idea that you were always talking about the 50 uh, kind of in the size of the 50 uh, headcount instead of the, the 150. So it's correct. So now it's almost 75, right? <laughs> yeah, thereabouts, yes. Okay. And um, 
any so I, I know that nowadays you are uh, super passionate about leaving the cloud and who who are following you but before going there maybe let's let's go back to the basics so here we cover you know some of the lessons learned scaling up companies uh, and as I told you scaling up companies on a bootstrapping fashion and also on through raising uh, VC capital if you could if you would like if you need to kind of highlight some of the lessons learned scaling a SaaS company what would those be i'd say the first thing is to question whether you need to scale up at all and at least when we talk about headcount um i think a lot of companies prematurely hire way too many people way more people than they need um we followed an approach that in almost all the roles we hire when it hurts that is for the longest time jason and i jason my my partner at the company we would do a role before we even contemplate hiring someone so if we had to do anything about finances hey both jason and i have a degree in business let's try to figure it out ourselves if we have to do something around marketing let's try to figure it out ourselves let's do something about hr let's try to figure it out ourselves and that provides kind of a damper on the growth curve instead of headcounts if you want to inhabit all of these roles first. But I think it made an absolutely huge difference for us that we did. We ended up figuring out that a bunch of the things we thought we needed perhaps to hire people for, we didn't need to hire people for at all. We could outsource it. We could do it as a, as a part-time thing. And only when it hurt too much to operate like that would we contemplate adding a person to the team to do it. And a lot of that is, of course, power by the fact that we were spending our own money and have been the entire time that 37 signals is is bootstrapped it's been profitable since day one both in its software incarnation and in its um, web design incarnation all the way back to 1999 every single year has been profitable and when you operate on those constraints um it also just means that in most cases you just won't be hiring that quickly i think the year we've hired the most people was probably one of the recent years maybe we hired something about 20 people in a single year which was kind of a lot for for our company but is absolutely tiny if you compare it to any of the of of the big players but that approach of just questioning why are we growing if we are running particularly a software company um, one of the magic things about software is that there's no incremental cost to onboarding another customer, or at least if you run it well in most domains, that's true. So this idea that we need to hire a ton of people, especially early on to, to drive the growth right. is, is not a universal fact. There are different ways to grow software companies, particularly these days it's called product-led growth, where you right. build as we did, you build an audience, you build someone who's interested in what you have to say, such that they might be interested in buying what you make without mm -hmm. you having to have a huge marketing budget or a huge marketing team to make people aware of you. And then um, you don't have this linear relationship that a thousand new customers require you to hire 20 more people. That's simply not how it goes. I think if, if we look at our most extreme ratio of employees to customers i think by the time we were seven people we probably had about thirty thousand customers now wow. these are paying customers um at a, at a SaaS company just giving you uh, a sense of 
the, how much you can divorce those things. Now that that was undersized, right? Like the the seven or ten people, whatever we were around the thirty thousand customers, like that was not enough. It didn't have enough resilience. It didn't have enough backup. Bus factor wasn't great, and all these other things. But if you look at where we are today, for example, which we have over a hundred thousand customers. Um, mm -hmm. And we are, as you said, about 75 people. You look at some of these competitors that we have in project management, for example, they have the same number of customers and they might have 1,500 people right. or 2,000 <laughs> people. Now, some of that goes down to how your go-to-market strategy is or you're an enterprise software company. Mm -hmm. Do you have a big sales team and so forth um, right. or, or not? And in our case, not. We've never had a sales force. At the mm -hmm. company, um, we've only very recently had a sort of full function marketing team. So a lot of these conventions about what you're supposed to do and in what order and how quickly, I find to be seriously flawed. And almost all of them are built on the venture capital playbook. This idea that I'm going to give you a bunch of money and you have 18 months to spend it. Now, that requires you simply to hire a ton of people because that's the main way you can spend. So that's the main way you can kind of put those funds to use. But that doesn't mean it's a good use. So much venture capital has been raised and then squandered, hiring a ton of people that the company was in no shape ready for. They did not have the business figured out in a way that they could put those heads to productive use. But that was simply the mechanics of the venture capital model. Now. We haven't, we've never taken venture capital. So we are on a completely different strategy, a strategy where the bottom line is simply, is this good business? Do, do the people we're hiring here, does that make sense? Are we able to sort of put them to good use? Is there new things that we're unlocking and so forth? So that's one factor of it. And then the other factor is that um, we, for a very long time, simply weren't interested in being a large company. So we rejected the whole scale-up goal, which is right. to become as big as you possibly can, as quickly as you possibly can. Um, and that really culminated in 2014 when we were around 40 people. We had four uh, growing SaaS products, and we could see things creaking, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was just there was too many customers, too many products mm -hmm. for too small of a team. Now, the natural scale up instinct, of course, would be what are you talking about? This is a wonderful product or a problem <laughs> to have. Just hire right. a bunch of people, split into multiple teams, insert new layers of management, boom, 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 right? And we went like, but why? Why do we have to do that? Could we also do something else? Could we decide that we like the size that we're at? And that's exactly what we did. So we said, hey, we like the size that we're at. We can't keep that size and have four products at the same time. So we're okay. going to wind down, spin off, or decommission three out of four. We're going to go all in on Basecamp, which is what we did. We called mm -hmm. it internally the strategy becoming Basecamp. We even changed the name of the wow. company to Basecamp from 37 right. Signals back then. Um, and we were able to operate the Basecamp business with 40 people. So this is, again, one of those, like, hey, just expand your horizon here. There are so many different ways to run a company. Some of the ways include realizing that the spot you're at at any given moment might be a great spot. You might want to stay there maybe for just a few years, maybe forever. For us, it ended up being about seven years. We stayed as becoming Basecamp for seven years, and then we kind of had that itch 
to make another product. Basecamp continued to do awesome, but we were like, you know what? We have some creative energies here. We want to get an outlet for So we made hate.com, our new email service. And then it was clear that like the, the strategy of just staying 40 people was not compatible with having two major products at the same time. Especially something like Hey, which launched in a very peculiar way. We had spent like a couple of years building this system um, and we'd spent millions of dollars doing it. Didn't know what I was going to do. And then it launched straight into this absolutely insane campaign where Apple tried to kill us. So mm-hmm. we introduced this a new email service. Uh, of course, you need an app for that. We put an app in the Google Play Store. We put an app. Uh, app in the app store and like two days after we launch apple shows up and said like actually it was a mistake we approved your app um we should never have oh. approved approved it unless you're willing to give us 30 percent of your revenues because you should just flow all your business through um payment processing and like then it's gonna be good we had this massive fight for like two weeks and we got this incredible launch campaign very <laughs> risky launch campaign i would not recommend it to anyone but we ended up now with a with an email service that within a few weeks had tens of thousands of paying customers. So clearly the company we had just couldn't stomach those things. That's how we ended up being 75 people wanting to do more than one thing at at the same time again. But that trajectory just also really screws with the narrative that like it's supposed to go up and to the right as sort of this constant curve. Mm -hmm. And we just went like, hey, it's going up, up, up. And then we like the plateau. Plateau is one of those words, right? When it's used in the lexicon of the venture capital model, it's like the worst thing that can absolutely, you've stalled. That's (laughs) how they usually talk about it, right? A plateau is also just a flat plane. Do you know what? Building a nice house where you want to live is a lot easier on a flat plane than it is on an incline. I can tell you I've actually (laughs) built a house on an incline. It's a complete pain in the ass. Um, I very much recommend building a house on on a flat plateau. And that's, again, it's one of those opportunities you can have when no one is telling you grow, 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 grow. So that's how we ended up with this weird trajectory, embracing the plateau, welcoming the plateau and living there wonderfully for seven years before realizing, you know what, Uh, let's live somewhere else. Right. And in terms of when when you are visualizing the future and defining kind of your vision in five, three, uh, next year, next quarter what is kind of your approach do you focus more on net revenue retention more on kind of product metrics and do you also try to grow kind of 10 20 percent year over year Um, do you prefer to focus more on EBITDA or the margin so how do you bring some of your strategic themes for for the next uh, five years three years next year next quarter yeah good question um I'm going to give you the glib, simple answer, which is we do none of those things. We've never paid attention to any of those things. Um, it's not entirely true. And now at 75, we do have a couple of people who are looking at or minding the numbers, but it's not what drives the business. It has never driven the business. What we've driven the business on is we want to be profitable because that allows us to be independent. If we don't need other people's money, no one can tell us what to do. That has been sort of the paramount goal and value for Jason and I, this independence where we get to do all the things no one would ever give us permission to do. If we had a board, no doubt half the shit that we pulled over the 20 years we've been in business would not have been uh, signed off. So not interested in doing any of that. And then on the other hand, like how do we optimize the metrics 
we basically approached in the sense of, do you know what? The metrics are going to come by themselves as you make something that people want and that you spend less than you than you make. What exactly is the margin? Like at, at our highest, maybe our margins were in the 70 to 80%. Like this is software after all, tiny team, lots of customers. Um, our margins aren't that extreme anymore, but they're still incredibly high. And and outlying just in the sheer fact that there are, are positive numbers on the bottom line. And then we don't look at that as um, something to feel anxious about that we need to reinvest it at a certain return or whatever. We're not returning money to anyone but ourselves. That's also not entirely true. We actually do have one, now two, sort of silent partners on boat on, on board our boat. In 2006, Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. bought a minority stake through a sale of secondaries from Jason and I. No money went into the business. The business was doing just fine, but Jason and I took some uh, risk off the table by, by doing that. So that's still there, but we made sure that that stake never had any control whatsoever in any shape or form of what we, it was simply a caboose that connected to the train and where we were going, that caboose was going to go to. So uh, Jeff and and now his his ex-wife simply share just a, a slice of the, of the profits that we distribute on a regular basis. And those profits go up and down somewhat, but they've always been very comfortable because we've never gotten out over our skis. I find that this sort of fine-tuned micromanagement is something you have to do either in the early phase when you really have to watch your runway because you're going to run out of cash and the business is going to be dead in the mm -hmm. state when you're not yet profitable. And then once you get profitable, all this reporting, all this optimization, a lot of it is to please the investors who gave you the money. If you don't have those two things, if you don't have unprofitability and you don't have investors that you have to report to, you could also just say like, do you know what? It's not that I don't care. I have a personal interest in the business doing well because Jason right. and I own it and, and we get profits from that. I have an aesthetic interest in the business doing well because I like efficient optimized things, not too efficient, not too optimized, but well optimized, right? Like I look at as we talked about, a lot of our competitors serving similar customer bases that have like thousands of employees. And I go like, that looks horribly inefficient to me. I can't even compute that. Um, but beyond that, do you know what? That's not where I want to spend my brain power. And, and, and to sort of address the long tail of that, you talk about mm -hmm. like a five-year plan. Yeah. We've never, ever had even a six-month plan. Like at best, we have some loose, fluffy clouds of ideas that we might want to pursue one day. And then we look six weeks ahead. And I think giving up on this illusion that you can actually control your numbers by watching them really tightly or, or hitting people with a whip if they don't make <laughs> them um, is incredibly liberating. And it is liberating in a way that does not mean you end up with a less profitable company. This is one of the things that I've always just had such an amusement with when venture capitalists looked at our business, particularly in the early days, what they would say is, this looks like a lifestyle business, a nice <laughs> little lifestyle business, which gives you this mental image of like a corner store or something, a mom and pop store that's just covering the bills. And just, first of all, lifestyle and business. Why shouldn't those two things go together? Why do I want to be in business if I can't have a life with style? Uh -huh next to it. <laughs> um, that just seems like a perverse 
uh, juxtaposition to set up that these two things are in contrast. But then second of all, just because you're running a business where the prime objective is not to grow at all cost does not mean you don't grow. Just because you don't run a business that's about squeezing the most money out of everything does not mean you're not making a lot of money. We've been in business for over 20 years. We've made all the money we could ever spend. And it's still fun to be there because the objective is not to provide a set of returns and then be done with it, right? Like a lot of, if you'd like to call it these entrepreneurial journeys, they're all about startup to scale up to cash out, right? And then you're done. That Maybe that's seven years, maybe it's 12 years. There's a few outlying examples of people who make it all the way through the journey and they hold on and they are right. founder-led large companies. They're rare. The majority yeah. don't go through that journey, right? Um, in fact, the majority never makes it through the journey. It's kind of like that um, old game of, uh, um, what's it called? Like going west. You died of uh, dysentery. Um, right along the journey. The vast majority of startups die along the journey because they follow a route that's designed for them to die. It's designed up front. It's not even secret. Most venture capitalists will say, um, like series A round, like they'll talk to the investments, like nine out of 10 of you will die, but that is a sacrifice <laughs> I am willing to make. Um, I always thought about it like from, from the person who's on the other side, like, hey, wait a minute. I have only a, a one in 10th chance of survival. Those yeah. odds are worse than Russian roulette. I don't <laughs> like Russian roulette. I would not want to play Russian roulette, neither with my life nor my business. Um, why would I take odds that are so much worse? So we ran a business on a, on a very different playbook that had very different odds. I am not actually this incredibly risk-seeking individual. Mm -hmm. I don't mind occasionally taking some considered risks, but like a, a risk factor of like nine out of 10, you're dead. That sounded just like gambling to me. And I hate gambling. Yeah. And it's curious to see that some entrepreneurs are really questioning those odds as they are becoming more and more visible to everyone. Uh, and people start becoming less innocent, let's say, uh, because sometimes you only understand the rules of the game when you are already in the game. And uh, then it's difficult to leave the game. right? <laughs> but uh, yes, and... this is one of those um, perhaps um, sort of unfortunate combinations that the People I meet who are most jaded about venture capital are the people who've gone through the venture capital route and seen a company killed because they see all the nice faces and the handshakes and we're there for you and so on. Turn on a dime as soon as you hit the plateau, as soon as things right. are not growing as fast as they're supposed to. And they they see the the change in the people they're dealing with, the people who were oh so nice and oh so enthusiastic suddenly turn into very different characters. Once, <laughs> yes, exactly. Once there's a sense of, uh, of crisis. Yet at the same time, they're getting indoctrinated in the playbook to the degree that like the sort of the, the gaps in their eyes or the focus range just becomes smaller and smaller. They think like, well, this is just a game. Now, not all. Some people do realize, you know what? There are different ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I'm seeing that mostly from people who made it through some sort of success. Maybe the company was sold or whatever. A lot of them are like, do you know what? Next time I'm doing it, fuck no, I'm doing it the same way. No way. We're going <laughs> to bootstrap this thing. I'm going to fund it with my own money. I'm going to, yeah. all these other things, right? And in terms of when you were talking about growth, David, uh, were you talking about 
both headcount growth and revenue uh, growth. Uh, I'm just imagining imagining that that scenario, uh, like the the one maybe that you just described, that you have four products or that you have one product and after there is kind of a network effect and there is a, a set of referrals from clients to another. And, and then you start seeing your revenue grow kind of 20% on, on a quarter, maybe next quarter, it will remain stable. And for another four quarters, it will remain, uh, remain stable. Um, but then you will see revenue growth, but you will not, you will try to serve that revenue growth without headcount growth by becoming more productive and by uh, having the intent of, of the, staying kind of the 75 or the 50 people in terms of headcount. That, that's the way you manage it or? Um... Yeah, to some degrees, right? Like yeah. when we made the decision in 2014 that we were um, just going to stay the size that we were, Basecamp okay. continued to grow for many years after that, even with a relatively stable headcount, we just kept adding revenue, which meant yeah. that obviously uh, profits kept growing too. But at some point, Basecamp also hit slower growth rates, um, which is natural um yeah. as other competitors come in and 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 so forth and so what that was the, the the big liberating factor of owning your own company is that like growth per se doesn't really matter profits do if you're looking at it purely from a economic perspective right the worst thing that can happen to a, a startup that has not cashed out yet is for growth to stall that's the worst thing that can happen. That's when right. all your, your friends in the VC um, sort of Rolodex turn on you. For a regular, or I don't know, a regular business. Actually, I would say a regular business. For a profitable business, let's call it that. Growth is just one factor. It's just one mm -hmm. factor. Like if, if, just hypothetical examples here. If we're making $100 million a year, and all of a sudden, like the next year, we're not making 120, we're just also making 100 million. Right? right, like if our margins is just fifty percent, I'm making fifty million dollars a year. Who? Yeah. What? How is that bad? How is that not a wonderful, extremely privileged position to be in? If you get to keep that money, you'd be like, yeah, sign me up for that. I don't need any more growth. Like a fifty million a year sounds good. Let's just stay there. For a startup, anyone on a venture capital journey, it's death. Right? Yeah. Maybe fifty, a hundred million. Probably not death. That's when you just break through, perhaps. But let's take it down. Right. Let's just say you're making 20 million a year, right? Mm -hmm. You might be making 20 million a year, still at 50% margin. So you get to keep 10 million, right? For most venture capital scenarios, that's absolutely a failure state. What what are they gonna do with a company that makes 20 million a year if it stalls out at 20 million, right? right. It's never gonna make it into the IPO mm. window. You have that's to clear 100 business. million to get to that, right? At best, maybe it can be a acquisition target and they can get out with like sort of a, a base hit or something that's not completely mm -hmm. disastrous, but it's not a slam dunk. It's not a home run scenario. Now imagine you're the owner of that business. You're making 10 million a year. How is that not like the slam dunk one of the best things that could ever possibly happen as an entrepreneur, you end up with a business that can produce $10 million a year in profits year after year. That's an incredible success. And there you have it. The same business run on a venture capital timeline and lens is a failure. Looking at that same business from the lens of a, a fully owned entrepreneur led business, it's a slam dunk, amazing success. And that 
that's what interests me, right? Like helping people realize that, hey, a, a business that stalls at ten million dollars a year is just is nirvana, right? And and what is your approach? We know that everyone is understanding in SaaS that net revenue retention is a very important metric, and uh, and it doesn't matter if you if you are having a, a big growth in ARR, if you are not able to retain your customers. Um, but there is also this pressure then on net revenue retention is we need to find out new things to sell to our customers. Uh, so there is this kind of, maybe the, the wrong mindset is not about what are the needs that our customers have and what are the opportunities to serve them better. And as a consequence, this will increase our revenue. It is the opposite. So what the hell can we do quick to be able to upsell them in the next 12 months because VCs tell us that net revenue retention is really important and we need to bring growth out of the net revenue retention and we need to do some bets to have ARR uh, growth. In that perspective, do you work a lot at 37 signals on the NRR metric or uh, you don't obsess a lot uh, about the metric? Basically don't use it at all. Okay. And one of the reasons <laughs> is that for the longest time and still to the large degree, um, we don't have a lot of upsell opportunities. For the longest time, Basecamp was one price, $99 a month. That's it. That's all you can pay us. I don't care if you're a large company, or you're a little company, you're a medium company, you're paying us $99 a month. Now we've changed over to a little bit more of a variable pricing where it's $15 a seat, but we put a cap on it to save ourselves from exactly that pit you just talked about on $299. No company can pay us more than $299 a month. Once they reach that, they're capped out. That That's it. We don't want the whales. We don't want to be whale hunters. Net revenue retention leads and breeds whale hunters. Well, yeah. This is why all the competitors in our space, they follow the same playbook. They use the small and medium-sized businesses as a mere stepping stone. They know from day one, they're just there. The small and medium-sized businesses are just there to create the traction numbers that they can put into a pitch deck that they can sell to a VC. And then as soon as they have quote unquote real money to put behind this thing that has traction, fuck the SMBs. <laughs> We're going all in on the enterprise whales because that's where all the money is on that model, on a model that's predicated to um, right. revenue expansion on a per seat basis, right? This is yeah. why you end up... Um, with S1s, when, when Slack went public, I remember vividly reading through their S1 and going like, wow, they've attracted a lot of users and so forth. And then somewhere in the perspective, there was a note that sent something kind to, hey, by the way, investors just know that essentially our entire revenue base is 450 companies. Like it was something like 95% of revenue, I forget the specifics, but a tiny number of huge mm -hmm. whales account for virtually all our revenue. 80, 20, that right. leads you to a very specific kind of business, a business that's heavy on enterprise sales, um, on this um, net revenue expansion paradigm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that that paradigm can't work. I'm saying it just leads to a certain kind of business and I have no interest in that kind of business. I don't want to run right. that kind of business. You don't need to run that kind of business to run a great business. You can run a business like we did that caps the amount of money a single customer can pay you, such that it also caps the amount of power 
a single company can have over you, a single customer can have over you. I mm -hmm. guarantee you that the amount of power that these huge whales have in any of these large companies is enormous. It is absolutely enormous. It could drive the roadmap of the product. It can get any executive on the phone at any hour mm -hmm. if the account is big enough. And it's just, it's an entire mode of being that I have no interest in being in. And then I think people should think more explicitly about whether that's where they want to be. Because there's a million other ways to run a business. And one of them, is, as I said, we've done is to have more customers of a smaller size, of a smaller LTV, of, of all these other factors into it. Yes, you need more of them to make it add up. Um, but again, once you enter, you end up in a position of far greater independence and right. self-direction. And you can build a product on behalf of people instead of on their request. I find that a lot of customers, especially if they're large, they think they're good at designing software. Most of them suck at designing software. That's why they're buying it from someone else. But they can't connect that dot with the fact that like all their demands for how the features should be or what we should work on next like should be the top priority. And of course, that's how it is. When you pay the most money, you think you're the most important. Right. So we capped everyone at roughly equally important such that a hundred thousand people can all have requests and we will take them all in and we will read them and we will listen to them and then we nice. will make up our own mind about which way to go nice something interesting about the the kind of the where you want to to have the plateau in terms of ad count growth is it's really the limit where you start seeing another uh another uh let's say problem in terms of managing the 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 culture of the team and uh, and the ad count. So when you when you start needing to introduce the middle management layer after 75, 8, and 100 people, right? So I think that it's really on purpose that you stop at 50 or 75 because then you can almost uh, run the business with uh, a unique leadership team. Uh, and I know that you like to be very decentralized in the way you, you manage and, and the culture that you have in, uh, on the company, but maybe I'd like to focus there. So how it looks like your leadership team and um, how it affects uh, the culture of uh, 37 Signals? It's a great point and it's absolutely instrumental. In fact, it was the key point as to why we chose to stay the becoming Basecamp strategy. Because at 40 people, you don't need any middle management at all. And we had none. At 40 people, we had zero full-time managers. Now at 75, I would classify two people currently at the company as full-time managers. Two. Okay. Our COO and um, an engineering manager we have. Everyone else, wow. everyone else are in the trenches with the work itself. As in... You might have a team lead on a, on a programming team or a design team, but they're also designing. They're also programming. Even Jason or I, I don't classify either of us as full-time managers. We spend the majority of our time in the stuff, making things ourselves, writing copy, doing designs, doing programming, doing all these things, right? So the leadership team is, is the executive team is three people. It's me right. as CTO, Jason as the CEO, and Elaine CEO. as our COO. Wow. Um, and that's sort of it in terms of like very large decisions about so where we go. Very optimized for a seventy-five. Uh, yes, I mean, we we did have a, a little more recently, and then we actually scaled back a little bit in part because mm -hmm. of. 
that sense of like, how much do we actually need? I'm of the opinion that most companies, certainly at a size of 75 people or, or, or less, need very, very little full-time management. And in fact, I'd go even further and to say that sort of a large managerial group at that level is detrimental to the business. Um, that you just don't have enough people to do the work for executives to come up with new strategies full-time. It is not a full-time job to come up with strategies for what a company of 70 should do. It just isn't. It probably becomes that at some point. I can imagine if you're thousands of people, maybe even high hundreds, like you you need that because it's just an, uh, enough, but you don't need that at our size. And you certainly didn't need it at 40. I mean, we literally had zero full-time managers at 40. And so much of that then comes down to the culture of, of trust, of how do we build products? Are we micromanaging people? How much autonomy are we letting them have? Um, we let people have an incredible amount of autonomy, an incredible amount of trust. Um, we hire really good, diligent, smart people. We have someone sort of make sure we make the right hiring decisions. That doesn't happen always. I mean, everyone makes hiring quote unquote mistakes. Sometimes the mistake is simply just that person didn't fit into this puzzle. They'll fit into another puzzle just fine, perfectly perhaps, but they don't fit into this puzzle. And figuring that out and, and making sure that the pieces that don't fit, they don't stay in the picture mm -hmm. is a leadership management, whatever challenge, but it isn't a full-time one. If it's full-time one, you really fucked up on your hiring pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, but once you've gone through that process, you're very diligent about how you hire. You correct for the inevitable mistakes you will make when you hire. That's almost as important, right? You can have a wonderful, really finely tuned hiring pipeline. But every hiring pipeline has a has a failure rate of at least 10%. It's probably way higher than that. But one out of 10 hires at least will not be the right. right piece for your puzzle. So you have to correct for that. Otherwise, you will destroy your, your picture quite quickly. But... Once you do those things, you end up with, with a, a group of people who, if you let them, are interested in building good stuff. And you put them together with other people who are also interested in building good stuff. And you know what? A lot of times they can figure out the majority of that themselves. So the management style that we do with that, we've actually embodied it into a whole methodology. Um, it's called Shape Up. We put it all out. Uh, in the open at basecamp.com slash shape up that talks about how we steer the products. And that's really key because this steering is quite high level and it happens at um, infrequent intervals. So when I, we talked about like, how long do you plan out? And I said six weeks, those six weeks actually come from shape up. That is the clock frequency that we use inside the company. Um, every six weeks, and then we have two weeks of cooldowns or really every every eight weeks or about every two months, about six times a year, we mm -hmm. get to make up our mind on what we should work on. And we'll make up our mind in such a way that's quite high level, so that engaged, skilled, trustworthy individuals can take a high level description mm -hmm. of where we want to take the product. Hey, here's the feature. Let me write it up on a single page. You figure out how it's going to work. I'm not going to try to freaking break it down into a million pieces for you. I'm not going to chew your food for you. <laughs> Here's a goddamn steak. Here's a knife. Here's a fork. You figure out how to cut it. You have six weeks. Come up with something great. This is one of the reasons we don't work on estimates. One of the worst things 
that ever happened to software development was the delusion that you could plan software projects on the basis of estimates. Humans are incapable of creating accurate, high fidelity estimates that actually ever are met. This is one of the reasons why the history of large software projects is it went over budget and then it got canceled. And then the history of successful software projects that, that make it through was that they started really small. All complicated systems started as a well-functioning small system and grew from there, right? Um, so we take this approach that screw estimates, budgets are in. Six weeks, this is what you got to do it. So you just end up with a very different culture, a culture that does not require constant checkup and check-in. It does not require daily stand-ups. Right. It does not require reporting on like, hey, where are we with that? No, no. You build it in an asynchronous manner. We obviously use Basecamp to run our entire business, but that allows us to do that kind of stuff. One example of that in Basecamp is we have a feature called automatic questions. So there are really two questions in Basecamp to drive this philosophy on the practical level. One is a question we ask every Monday morning, which is, what are you going to work on this week? Just give us a narrative. What are you going to work on? Um, you will highlight the major bits. Someone can chime in if they see a blocker or something else. And then at the end of every day, we ask, what did you work on today? And most people don't have it every day, but like a couple of times a week, they'll answer it. That's enough. You now no longer need like daily standups. You no longer need your manager constantly checking in right. on you. You just have this reporting system that, by the way, scales far greater than any of those tools, talking directly to a manager, talking to your small team does. When when we have people answering their, what did you work on today? 70 people can read it and chime in on it. So you end up with a different culture, with a different structure, when you basically say management is a necessary evil. I'd actually go so far as to say it's a poison. And if you have just a few drops, it's just enough to sort of kill the malignant cancers that can grow in organizations that delude themselves into thinking that no hierarchy is ever needing and all authority is bad. Like those things are off into the weeds and nonsense. So you need just a, a tap of poison, a tap of Roundup to weed that out. But then you otherwise need to just let it the fuck grow. Incredible uh, insights and uh, incredible also how time flies. Uh, and I want to be respectful uh, of your time, David. Uh, I will go to a question uh, that was kindly sent to me by Hugo Macedo, which, which has been one of our pre previous guests and um, with a question that would like me to ask you. Um, and also to compensate the ones who suggest me questions for my guests. <laughs> Here it goes. So uh, you are doing great with, with Basecamp. You already done well with um, Ruby on Rails. All was nice. Then you decide to do a small project called A.com, a new email service to replace Gmail. Why? What keeps you moving? How do you define those challenges? Good question, um, especially in context of the conversation we had earlier about becoming Basecamp in 2014 to sign in, we're just going to do Basecamp. I think sometimes like urges just build up, creativity just builds up, new ideas just build up to a point where um, you can't contain them anymore. That is, you can't package them and just put them on the shelf. You have to act on them. I think this is where both Jason and I ended up with Hey.com was of all the products that we use to run our company, that we've used to collaborate, we spend the majority of our time in Basecamp. Basecamp is used to build a base camp, it's used to run our company, it's used to for everything, right? Like it's the one right. sort of central truth of everything. 
So that's the center point. That's why we spend 20 years trying to figure out how to make the absolute best version of it. I think we arrived at a pretty good version of that. But then the second next most used tool is email. I've spent 25 years using email, about almost, what did I end up spending? 17, 18 years of that using Gmail. That sucked in such a large proportion of my attention and energy every day. And I thought, you know what? Gmail is not a bad system. In fact, when Gmail was first introduced, I thought it was freaking amazing. I mean, I don't know if you were around at that time, but when you got that invite and it was a whole invite system, you got into it and you go like, wow, basically unlimited <laughs> space and all these things. It was really revolutionary, right? It was amazing. It was a major breakthrough. That was 2004. 2004, the products barely changed. I mean, it's not technically true. It's changed in some ways. But fundamentally, once you reach the kind of success that Gmail has had and has had for a very long time, hundreds of millions of users within the first few years, and I think now they have 1.7 billion users, yeah. that is a graveyard for good ideas to go to die. You simply can't reimagine how email is done when you have over a billion users. They would revolt in a second if you move just one button five inches or change the color of it, right? <laughs> I learned this system. I don't want to change. I don't want to, which is sort of, it's a it's a blessing and a curse. And it's a blessing in the sense you end up with this very um, liked or at least used product. And that's great. But it's a curse in the sense that it traps all ideas and it freezes it. It's almost like ember, right? You see this little mosquito that was frozen in ember about 2 billion years ago. And you go like, well, it's really pretty. And also it didn't really have a chance to evolve, did it? Like that was just it. And I thought, you know what? I spent so much time in email. Jason spent so much time. I, I mean, there are days where I sent 50 or 100 emails. Um, I don't want to use a tool that hasn't had any substantial new ideas for 15 fucking years. That is just too long. My life is too short to use Gmail for another 15 <laughs> years. Still using this emperor um, mosquito that's been locked in place, incapable of, of evolving. So Jason and I both, um, I think, came to a realization around the same time. We had a bunch of different ideas where we were trying to produce or chase different products. We were at one point trying to chase a new version of Hi-Rise, a CRM we built. And essentially, we realized, you know what, at the center of all communication, whether it was customers or vendors or whatever, is email. Email is the, we say lowest common denominator is that's a bad thing. No, it's a fucking amazing thing. Email is one of the best things about the internet. There's so many people who've been shitting on email for so long that we tend to forget that what's under all that crap is a true treasure. The reason why we can't see the treasure is in part because that treasure has been frozen along with Gmail for so long that we haven't had any opportunity to move the ideas forward. So we had so many ideas of how to improve this, literally 25 years of usage experience, um, a good 10 years at least of frustration, like the honeymoon phase of Gmail lasted for a couple of years and then the frustration slowly started building. Then we went like, we have to get this out of our system. We simply have to get it out of our system. It'd just be fun to do too. We can do it. We've... I tend to, I, I like this image of the montage. I don't know if you've seen Rocky, but Rocky had a montage, right? Like where yeah. you go like, yeah, you're fighting and you show them like, duh, 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 and he's running and he's doing all these things. I think of that montage as like the 20 year history of our company. No way we could have taken on Gmail in 2004. That would have been a suicide mission. We were not ready. We did not have the tools. We did not have the know-how. 2020, which was when we launched, hey, we were ready. 
the montage was over. We were ready. We were buff. We were um, equipped to fight. Even something like G-Man. I mean, even fighting is a is a nonsense term when <laughs> we put in these. Like, we're never. We're not going for the 1.7 billion users. We're going for tens of thousands, perhaps if it really gets crazy, hundreds of thousands of paying customers. That's enough, right? We're not going for the crown of of VW. We're going for the crown of 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 a best Lamborghini or probably more likely Pagani. Um, making a luxury product for a small number of people who really care deeply about this space. Most people these days, they don't care that much about email, but there's actually a very large customer set that really does, where if you can move the needle just 10, 20, 30% on email, something they spend possibly hours on every day, you're making a huge stent. And then our ask of $100 a year for a vastly better email service is not something that fazes them. It's not a mass market product. It doesn't need to be a mass market product. This is one of the wonderful things about this way of running the business. We can just build a great product and then be happy with the tens of thousands of customers or hundreds of thousands that might show up one day. In the last segment of the show, David, we always ask a set of quick questions and answers. Uh, I will highlight uh, two of them uh, to to be uh, respective of uh, respectful of your time. So the first one is, if you would have the opportunity to have a coffee uh, with yourself uh, at the beginning of 37 Signals or when you joined it uh, two years later, what advice would you offer to your younger David? Well, first, I'd say you don't want to know. You don't want to know. Like, it is amazing to do your first startup, to do your first company, to do your first product. Don't ruin it by spoiling it with like, hey, here's what it actually ends up with. Here's where it goes. No, no, no. So much of the joy of that, again, I hate the word, but I'm going to use it anyway. Journey Mm -hmm. is in the unknown, is venturing beyond what you you already realized. The second thing I'd say is that um, you should start reading stoicism about 10 years sooner than you did. The stoic philosophy about embracing what's under your control and letting go of all the things that are not in your control was pivotal for me to have a much calmer disposition as a person in life generally, but specifically as a owner and operator of a business. There's so many things that can stress you out and freak you out when you run a business, particularly once you're responsible for payroll. You're responsible for other people. You end up worrying about you end up worrying about competitors. You end up worrying about dangers. You end up worrying about mm-hmm. so many things that you cannot control that it sucks energy and attention and heart out of all the things you can control. So being introduced to that body of wisdom earlier in my journey is perhaps the main thing I would say because it doesn't spoil mm-hmm. the journey. Um, right. But otherwise, I'd say like, Enjoy it. You're, you're going to look back, and a lot of entrepreneurs do, with these rose-colored glasses for a reason. Remember when we were just five people? We had barely any customers, and we won that customer. We overcome <laughs> that outage. We did some. Those are the core memories that you form that's going to carry with you for a lifetime, and you don't know in the moment. In the moment, you're just like, ah, why can't we get more customers? Ah, why can't I grow faster? Why do we reach a plateau? Why is our MRR not greater? Why are we not hitting the 40 over whatever? All these things where you, it's so easy to miss the moment 
to not be in the moment, to continuously live in the future, to live in the next quarter, to live in the next year, to live in the next release, to live in the next product. Some people even dilute themselves into already living in the next company. They have this image in their head that the they want to be a serial entrepreneur before they've even had one home run. I, it's just a shame. Life is lived in the moment. That is literally where all the essence of being a human is. And you can miss it oh so easily. And if you do, you're going to end up on the last day and think, fuck, I did not spend my time well. I regret it. I don't want to end up on the last day thinking, fuck, I spent my time poorly. I want to end up being ready, going like, do you know what? This is great. Even just the business. I mean, there's life on top of that. But just the business. If it was over tomorrow and I had 21 and a half years of this glorious run, I want to look back upon that and say like, awesome what a great run with gratitude not with regret not with like ah, oh, i didn't do this thing i didn't do that but what <laughs> shut up don't don't focus on any of that make sure that you run your company and the way you approach it in such a way that if it is over three years in you're going to look back with gratitude not regret if it's over seven years in you're going to look back with gratitude not regret that is sort of a mission for life that um I wish I would have embraced a little sooner. And with that, I'm even afraid to ask the next question because this is a, <laughs> such an amazing way to close the show. But it is, what are you the most proud of on your journey so far? Mm, I'd say a big part of that, being able to arrive at this place where we can right. look at the entire time span that we've spent on this company with gratitude, it could have been over at any point in that, almost any point in that, let's say three years in um, plus, and look back like, you know what? This was good. We conducted ourselves in a way yeah. where I can look back upon all the decisions, even the ones where I made mistakes and I made plenty and go like, you know what? Yeah, I stand behind that. Not in the individual decision necessarily, but in the thought process and how we carried ourselves and the values we used to guide the company that it... It was difficult at time and has been difficult and still is. You can be in business for 20 years and be very successful and think everything is like cleared out of the way and bam, there's like a riot right on your road in front of you, right? And you have to overcome that. Um, and I'd say that I'm I'm happy with the way we approach those roadblocks. I'm proud of the way we dealt with the hard times. Part of that perhaps is like there weren't that many because we didn't make it hard for ourselves. So it wasn't like this <laughs> constant struggle. There's a lot of entrepreneurs who really Love revel it. in the struggle that every week is a battle and all that <laughs> other nonsense. Like I'm not on that train at all. But still over 20 years, you're going to rack up some scars from some battles awesome. you've been through. And being able to look back upon those battles and go like, you know what? We carried ourselves with composure, with grace and with calm in most cases. And, and the ways we fell short were human. Like, I'm very satisfied with that. David, thanks so much for your time and thanks for making the episode number 300 a celebration and, and so special for all of us. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. And to the community, thanks for being there. We keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier as you scale up or you decide to not scale and have a very profitable business as we learned today with David. See you soon. And keep scaling or keep plateauing. <laughs> Talk soon.